Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Hannah Barnes. She's an award-winning investigative journalist and an author. Finding your place in the world can be hard. However, some interventions for struggling children may cause more harm than good. Britain's Gender Identity Development Service at the Tavistock Clinic has recently been shut down after controversial use of puberty blockers, and Hannah's investigation uncovers exactly what happened. Expect to learn why there was a huge increase in the number of children being referred for puberty blockers, just how ideological this institution was, whether the effects of puberty blockers can be reversed, whether children can consent to life-altering medication, just who is to blame, how these treatments can put children on a one-way ticket to much more serious procedures, and much more. A very spicy probably quite hotly contested topic today. However, Hannah is unbelievably measured in the way that she puts this across. It's evident that she is really trying hard to be objective, to not try and trigger tribal responses. Um, the work that she's done here is super, super impressive. Uh, I really hope that you enjoy this one. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modern wisdom. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. But now... Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Hannah Barnes. 
how did you feel before releasing this book and during the research? What did you think the sort of response was going to be like upon revealing your investigation and what's it actually been like since it's come out? I think the weeks and months prior to publication were the worst. I was very, very nervous and it had been years of work and it's a bit like, it was a bit like a third baby really. I've got two kids and you know, you take your baby out into the world and you want people to, to love it. Um, obviously not the way that you do. And uh, I love my children more than my work, but I was really nervous about how it would be received and and the response that I would would get as well. And I have to say, I've been so pleasantly surprised in that the the response has been overwhelmingly positive. I mean, there have been favourable reviews on the left, on the right of British politics. I've spoken with public service radio in Australia, the first time the ABC have really looked at this topic, acknowledging that you know, people do have concerns about the evidence base in particular. I've spoken to NPR over there in the States. Um, and I think when you get favourable reviews um, for your British viewers, you know, from the Guardian newspaper, from the Observer, from the New Statesman, but also from the Telegraph, the Mail on Sunday, the Sunday Times, the Times, you know, it really speaks to the, what I was trying to do with this book, which is this is a health story. It's not an ideological story. I'm not a cultural warrior in any way. It's about whether the best care was always provided to each and every one of the young people being seen at, at that gender clinic. It seems like for the very well-meaning people who are trying to raise well-meaning concerns around the ability to consent, the effectiveness of different treatments, the um, confusion both on both sides of the uh, consultant desk around how this stuff works, that because it is so ideologically heated, it's incredibly difficult. And also, it, this decision, I would actually say that some of the people on the right have made this a more difficult conversation to have because of how inflammatory and how reactionary some of their conversations have been because it's very easy to lambast anyone who decides to criticize this. So, oh, you must be one of those reactionary far-right people. You, you just want you know all trans people to die. And you go, well, I can see why uh, treading carefully, as it seems like you have done, uh, has hopefully managed to uh, even out the uh, the balance between left and right. I think so, but but also, I mean, just the way that I've approached the story and that we approached it at Newsnight, where this started, has always been, you know, we've tried to be calm. We've never questioned people's identities or the right to transition. It's not ever been about that. It's about, as I say, about the standard of care. And I think sometimes, as you mentioned, the language used when this or related issues are discussed is really unfortunate. And what I've tried to keep in mind the whole time while writing was, you know, we're talking about children and young people. And we need to, you know, be really careful in our language. And often those young people are really distressed. And it doesn't help to, to speak in really inflammatory terms. I think it's far more heated in the States than it is here. Obviously, it's very divisive here as well. But we don't have, you know, you mentioned sort of the evangelical right and, and the hard right who want to, who deny the existence of trans people and perhaps want to take away all care. And I don't think we have that here in the UK. No, I would agree. Um, 
for the people that are just in the UK and think that this is a very heated topic, turn that volume up by 10 times. And that's what you've got over here in the US. Okay, so what is the story of GIDS? Wow, where to start? Well, it started off as a, as a uh, it was the brainchild, if you like, of a child and adolescent psychiatrist called Domenico Ticelli. And he was really moved by a single example, a young person he was seeing in the early 1980s, who was female born, but strongly identified as male and was very distressed about being in this female body. And that example and a couple of others that he saw in his work as a psychiatrist in Croydon, sort of South London, gave him this idea that there had to be a specialist service for these young people who had this, what he called a very rare uh, condition where there was this mismatch potentially between biological sex and, and how they identified. And he succeeded in opening this service in... 1989 at a South London hospital called St George's and then it moved to its current home the Tavistock and Portman in 1994 and and really for quite a long time the numbers were very small the service was about talking therapies about trying to help those children and young people explore their gender identity to understand it to reduce their distress to help them manage uncertainty um there was also they did some work in schools about sort of trying to break down stigma and what he noticed even in those very early days was that often young people would obviously they'd have their gender related distress but they'd also sort of have quite a few other difficulties as well and while it was never the aim of the service to try and change someone's gender identity or to sort of push them one way or the other he noticed that sometimes by exploring someone's gender and kind of trying to help the distress being brought by the other conditions, perhaps sort of depression, anxiety, or, or what have you, then it might actually relieve that gender related distress at the same time. So it was a very cautious, slow approach. And what we know as colloquially as puberty blockers, they were available in the 1990s, but to 16 year olds only. So you'd pretty much had to have have gone through puberty um, by the time you could have them. And the idea was that they would help to prepare the body for those who wanted to transition, um, prepare the body for the administering of, of cross-sex hormones or, or gender-affirming hormones. Um, and it was acknowledged at the time that adolescence, well, it's acknowledged by, by professionals who work with young people, adolescence is a great time of fluidity and that gender incongruence in children was not quite the same as it is in adults in that it it might not be fixed and actually in some guidelines that Domenico Ticelli wrote in the late 90s it actually stated that professionals working with these young people should be mindful that um, strength of feeling might not indicate permanence if you like you know that it was still even if someone felt very, very strongly, it, it, it might not be that, that, that they would feel that way forever. Uh, and then the, the service sort of remained quite small. And then in the 2000s, it became under increasing pressure to provide those medications to, to younger aged people. And that was essentially because a team in the Netherlands had started doing that. Um, 
and JIDS was the second is the second oldest gender clinic for for children and young people, just after the Netherlands. Um, second oldest and, in the world. Yeah, in the in the world. Yeah. Wow. So I think that the Dutch opened in eighty seven, I believe, and um, yeah, JIDS opened in eighty nine, and there weren't very many people working in this field. And and as we went through the two thousands, pressure grew on the service. It appeared there was some very early data coming back from the Dutch team, and it appeared that there was something here that would help this very small group of young people who were very, very distressed, who had their gender incongruence from early childhood, and it had persisted and was consistent throughout and, and had intensified with the onset of puberty. And it's 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 a misnomer that pressure solely came from, from young people and families and and perhaps sort of trans-friendly groups. It, it came from all quarters. It came from them, certainly, but it also came from other clinicians working in this field. It came from those working in adult gender clinics who said, look, we, we deal with those, those adults who have had to go through puberty, and it's really distressing um, in some cases. Um, and it came from endocrinologists as well. And so they took a they, – they still had concerns, like the concerns that – that, that they had at the time was what impact blocking puberty at the younger age could have on bones because puberty is the time where our bone mineral density is increasing at its fastest rate. So if you stop that, what, what's the impact going to be longer term? And we, we still don't really know that. We know it's not good to stop it, but when you reintroduce hormones to the body, whether that's our naturally occurring ones or synthetic ones. It does increase again, but we don't know whether you actually would have hit the peak that you would have had you not interrupted it. We don't know that yet. Um, and they were concerned about what impact it might have on development, you know, your sexual identity, on brain, all these under things. And those those concerns didn't go away, but but they were they were under pressure. And actually there was an ethical argument that here is a treatment that might be very beneficial to this group of young people. Let's proceed on a cautious basis. We want to try and add to this evidence base because there aren't much data. So let's try and monitor a selected group of young people and, and see what the results are. So that's what they set out to do in 2011. And they ran this research study. They recruited 44 young people from, from the age of 12 uh, over the next three years. Um, and then sort of quite strikingly, rather than wait for that data to come back, in 2014, just after they had recruited the last young person to the study, so they'd only just started the blocker, they they rolled out early intervention, as it became known, as, as policy across the service. Um, How young to, is early intervention? Well, at that point, it was 12. But what they did in 2014 was not just roll it out and make it to anyone who fitted certain criteria, but but as not part of a study, but they actually did away with that younger age limit altogether. So they moved from what was called a an age approach to a stage approach. So providing someone had reached what they call Tanner stage two of puberty, which is pretty early puberty. Um, so for girls, it, it, you, you could have been, it, you could be in Tanner stage two, for example, but have not started your periods. Um, it's, it, it's that early. Um, provided you had reached Tanner stage two, you could potentially go on to puberty blockers. So for example, in, in girls in particular who tend to start puberty earlier, that could be as young as, as nine or 10. And certainly, um, 
data that that JIDs have presented publicly has shown that um, they've re referred a nine you know a nine year old for for puberty blockers and ten year olds have 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 started on puberty blockers. Not not many, but they have. Okay, so that's two thousand and fourteen. Um, yes, and then what happens is um, at the same time that, that, that the puberty blockers had become sort of more widely available, this coincided with a really quite rapid increase in the number of young people being referred. Um, and we saw this rise in absolute numbers. So from 2009 or 910, the financial year, 97 referrals to, to, to JIDs. Had that been, sorry, had that been relatively flat throughout the 2000s? Uh, well, it, it had grown, but not, you know, quite steadily. Well, you know, and, and some years it went up and so Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't huge. I mean, it, it, it had gone up. It, it, it did double one year. Which year was it? From memory, I can't, I think it might have been about 2004 five potentially went from 20 something to 50 odd but but it you know it, it was relatively small and and so we had this 97 in in 2009-10 and then it it went up 50 percent per annum until 2015 where it doubled and that was beyond anybody's expectations so and what number does 2015 get us to how many people is that so there's 1400 and something Okay. Um, and so not only did they see this really quite rapid increase in referrals, but there had been a really dramatic shift in the demographics of the referrals at the same time. So where has, whereas previously the majority of those referred had been boys, biological males, um, who had often had sort of lifelong gender dysphoria or gender incongruence, what happened over that five-year period or so is that the girls then equaled for the first time around 2011 and then massively overtook the boys so by 2015 it was two-thirds female in terms of referrals and they tended to be girls who didn't have this sense of lifelong gender incongruence but really their gender-related distress had started after the onset of puberty in adolescence and they often were contending with quite serious other problems as well, like eating disorders, suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety. Some had suffered physical or sexual abuse. Um, so they were really quite complicated young people. And this is really when clinicians working there started to worry because the evidence base for using the puberty blockers was limited anyway. That's why they set out to do the study in the first place to try to add to it because we didn't really have much data. There was a bit more by this point from the Dutch, but it, it's still, it's one, one gender clinic. But what JIDS was now doing was applying a medical treatment for which had a low evidence base to start with to a completely different cohort of young people for whom there really was no evidence that it worked. And, and actually, the leaders of the service were quite open about that. And they spoke to the UK Parliament in 2015. And in their evidence, they said, we have extended the use of physical interventions to those for whom there isn't a robust evidence base. We're not seeing the young people that are in the Dutch study. Um, but we think 
it will benefit them. Now, it was well-intentioned, but it wasn't evidence-based at that point. And, and, and the evidence really never came to support the widespread use of puberty blockers for, for this cohort of young people. And we haven't really, we haven't seen that from other gender clinics either. And, and a year later, 2016, some, some, the initial data started to come back from that, that study, which showed that at that point, every single one of the young people who'd gone on the blocker and who was eligible to go on to cross-sex hormones, the next stage of a, of a medical transition, had done so. And for some clinicians, you know, as, as one, one clinician in the book said, that was, that was their holy fuck moment because it exploded this idea that they were telling families and that they had been led to believe themselves that the blocker was providing time and space to think, which made perfect sense. Like the idea that someone is very distressed about their developing body, that's not the gender they identify with. So if you pause the body's development, then that made sense that you would pause the distress and allow allow time to think. But some people started to question, well, you know, what are the odds of adolescents in particular having time to think, but then all thinking the, t the same way? Like generally, that's not something we see. And moreover, when young people were approved for the blocker, that they were given no space to think either by the service because rather than increase the amount of time they spent talking with professionals and using that time, in fact, the frequency of appointments went down and they saw the service less often. So for some, it made... It just totally changed the way they practiced. They they saw that actually their decision to refer someone for puberty blockers, and I say refer because JIDS doesn't prescribe. They refer and then some endocrinologists at, at two other hospitals do the prescribing. That decision became much, much more serious because if it was the case, as it appeared to be, that those young people would almost inevitably go on to cross-sex hormones, then conversations needed to be had before you started the blocker about what transition might look like, what someone should expect from physical transition, the irreversibility of cross-sex hormones, what was known, what was not known. And so this, this was a real turning point. It seems like the puberty blockers become much more of a, a one-way street or a set of train tracks that once somebody gets put on them, it's rare that they're going to deviate. Well, it's really difficult to know for sure, because what we don't know is that we, we don't know that going on the puberty blocker in some way causes someone to stay fixed in their identity and therefore um, to go on to the next stage. And we don't know that because of the way the studies are designed. We can't infer cause and effect. But that is certainly what clinicians believe that it, that it might be, and, and you can't really say any more than might, but it might be that somehow pausing development or, 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 or blocking puberty might in some way lock in an identity and stop it from changing where it might have. And it, it might not have in all people. And, and I think it's really important to stress that for any group of children and young people who 
have gender incongruence from the studies that exist in the past. There have always been some that went on to transition as adults. So no one was ever questioning that. But there have always been a group that haven't as well. Um, and that tended to be the larger group. But but the, the concern actually initially about blocking puberty earlier w w was this, whether you would somehow lock in an identity that, that might have changed if you didn't do it. And, and that was something that was acknowledged by the Dutch team that pioneered this approach. They talked about sort of slightly unfortunate phrase, but they talked about something they called false positives, that if you blocked earlier, you might end up with these false positives, i.e. people who wouldn't have transitioned had, had they not gone on the blocker. Um, it's quite a euphemistic way of putting it. But um, so it was always acknowledged that this might happen. We don't know whether that is what's happening. And Jids would say, well, look, it's not surprising that all those young people went on to, to cross-sex hormones because we really carefully screened them. And we judged, we only, for that study, referred those for whom we thought were most likely to persist and become trans adults and transition because they'd had this this lifelong gender incongruence and we assessed really carefully and and we're just really good at this and 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 that's why we got the results that we had and i think there are a couple of problems there in that there are named professionals who took part in some of those assessments who say actually our assessments weren't that good and i did assessments that weren't that good and it's not very common for human beings to admit they made mistakes. And I think when people are prepared to put their name for it, I, there, there seems to be no incentive for, for someone to do that other than it, it being true. And I think the second difficulty is that while that may have been the case for that small group of 44 young people, um, although, as I've said, clinicians who took part in those assessments have, have challenged that, but even if you accept it for those 44, it seems to be the case that the vast majority of young people, period, go on to take cross-sex hormones. And these were not the young people who were carefully screened and had lifelong incongruence and, and, and what have you. So there are, there are a couple of difficulties there. Have you got any idea of how many patients were arriving at GIDS versus how many were being given puberty blockers? It's really, really difficult to put a number on it. And this is... I have tried very, very hard, as have many other people, to ask JIDS and the endocrinologists at both University College London hospitals and Leeds teaching hospitals where the endocrinologists are based, how many young people have been referred uh, and then prescribed puberty blockers. The honest answer is we don't know. From what is in the public domain, it would seem about, I put it about 17, 1800. Um, we know that in 2017, in response to a Freedom of Information request, JID said that they had referred um, 1,261. So that was 2017. Now, there was a period where not much happened at all because of, of, of legal disputes. Um, there was a paper published last summer which, which gave some, some more figures for 2017 to 19. And, and adding those up together with, with some data that I received back from, from, from one of the hospitals, I would say it's sort of, yeah, min, minimum 17, 1800, which, which might not sound like a year or across all of them across uh, since, since 2011 or 
since or, or potentially since um it was nationally commissioned in 2009 but but really there was so, so few in those early years anyway because they weren't available um that might not sound very many so we think they've seen in that time about 10,000 so it's about about 20% but i think it's quite misleading to look at it that way and because it's it's i think it's more fruitful potentially and and this is what jids haven't really answered is to look at well how many of the people that were eligible were referred because there's there's a there's one graph in the book and this is kind of the best data we have which is really kind of poor in itself and this is from 2018 and it it shows the proportion of young people who had been referred to the clinic between 2010 and 2013 who by 2017 had been referred to endocrinology so for puberty blockers and what you can see very clearly is sort of a bell a classic bell curve that at, at both ends of the age distribution the very young and the very old you have quite low proportions so you know the three four five year olds um who were referred during that time um they wouldn't have been eligible basically because they hadn't started puberty so that kind of rules them out 16 and 17 year olds the 17 year olds in particular very low proportion because there's not really much point going on a puberty blocker you can go straight onto adult services and and, and have hormones direct so and, and that's clinicians say that happened quite a lot the the older ones would say because the rules here not not in the states but the rules here were even if you were 15 16 17 you had to go on puberty blockers for a year before you could go on hormones um you could never go straight onto hormones so so lots of people just waited for adult services but what you see in the middle these kind of adolescent years is very high proportions of young people who were referred between the ages of 11 and 15 were then referred for blockers. Um, and those who were referred in that time period, 2010 to 13, who were 14, in fact, about 70% about of them did. So averages can be very misleading. And, you know, for years, JIDS put out a figure in the public domain. They gave it in loads and loads of interviews. They said about 40% of the young people are referred for puberty blockers. And of those who we see who are referred under 12, it's about 20 to 25%, which you don't have to be a mathematical genius to work out. Well, if the average overall is about 40% and the under 12s is about 20, then it, it sort of implies that the over 12s is about 60, you know, just basic maths. Um, and, and those proportions have come down, but really, Without the actual proper data in the public domain, all we can surmise is the, these are my best estimates. Well, isn't this place run by the NHS? Yeah. Is that not owned? But I mean, how is this not freedom of information? Like it's literally well, owned by the British government. Well, yeah, it's not owned by the British government, but I know what you're saying. I mean, yeah. there have been countless freedom of information requests asking for this data. And the response is... We don't have it or we have it but it would take far too long for us to get it because that screams information nhs absolutely screams nhs <laughs> well this is this is the individual trust so so they've been asked yeah, yeah. On, on many and, and you know occasionally they've given us bits of data like that that 1261 that that came from a freedom of information request um 
and I have personally um, FOI'd the trust and and the endocrinology hospitals, and they haven't provided it. Um, they must have it, and 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 it is in those patient records. Obviously, if a young person has been referred, but I I think also concentrating solely on the physical interventions only tells a fraction of the story. I mean, you know, we don't know what's happened to those who weren't referred for them while at JIDS. We don't know whether their gender distress resolved and if so, how and what they're doing now. We don't know how many went on to adult services. We don't know how many people are happy. We don't know how many people are not happy. Um, we don't know much at all. Given that this is an incredibly serious intervention that has lifelong repercussions this is the sort of thing that tracking would have been pretty useful for just how effective is this sort of intervention just how effective is it to not intervene can we do talk therapy can we do other things that don't lock in this set of train tracks down okay so am i right in saying that gids only all that they did was refer for puberty blockers they weren't doing um, so they weren't referring for surgery. They weren't referring for anything else. Was the sole thing that they did refer for puberty blockers? Yeah, they had absolutely nothing to do with surgery. So everybody they saw was under 18. And um, I, while I believe that you can get double mastectomies now at 17, no, they, they, they have nothing to do with that. That's solely adult services. So they would refer for puberty blockers. And this is the key thing that that from around 2014, also when they became in their own words, an assessment service, there was no other treatment pathway that they offered. So they didn't, they they weren't offering extended ongoing talking therapy, like you say. They would assess for suitability for physical interventions. And that's not to imply that the majority were referred onto that, but they weren't offered anything else really either. Are puberty blockers reversible? Because that's something that I've heard claimed. The honest answer is we don't know. I mean, physically, they are, well, the honest answer is we don't know. The, the official NHS guidance is little is known about the long-term side effects of using puberty blockers to treat this condition because they function very differently when used um, in gender distressed young people than they do in the treatment of precocious puberty for which they are licensed because in precocious puberty where a child starts puberty very very early like way before they're ready they take the puberty blocker it pauses the development and then they stop and then they go through their body's biological puberty in generally speaking as we've already mentioned when a young person experiencing distress about their gender takes a puberty blocker, they don't stop. They take it and their body never goes through their biological puberty. They will then go on to cross-sex hormones and hormones will return to their body and, and their bones will start strengthening again, but it's not it's not their body's natural naturally occurring hormones. So systematic reviews of the evidence base have been undertaken here in England by NICE, the National Institute for Care and Health Excellence, in Sweden, in Finland, and I believe Norway now as well, by the respected health bodies, the official health bodies. And in all those cases where they've undertaken a systematic review, they've found the evidence base wanting on 
the efficacy of using both puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones um, in, in this area of healthcare. But physically, they are reversible in that if you stop, then yes, puberty resumes. But But what we don't know and what's acknowledged by the NHS in its official guidance is we don't know what long-term impact blocking puberty might have on brain development, on cognitive development, on sexuality, on the development of other identities. Uh, so we, we don't know any of that because yeah, the long-term data doesn't exist. And, and interestingly, there's a case study in the book, a young trans man called Jacob, who took the blocker for four years from 12 to 16, was not very well on them at all. And, you know, the argument is, yes, they're physically reversible and puberty resumes. Well, he didn't get his periods for two years after coming off the blocker. And even now, he's 19. They're not regular. And surprisingly, he's not being monitored at all. There's been no follow-up since he chose to leave the care of JITS. So the statement is made that they're physically reversible. But in fact, when used to treat this condition, we really don't know. So few people come off and then they're not followed that we don't know and we don't have the long-term data. What about the effectiveness of puberty blockers for helping with suffering and suicidality in youngsters? Well, again, the data are really quite poor. Um, the original Dutch studies argued that there was a psychological, they saw psych psychological benefit to, to going on the puberty blockers and, and, and then they didn't actually measure the sole impact of cross-sex hormones. It was hormones and surgery. Um, and they said the whole pathway was, was, was beneficial. But, but when JIDS tried to replicate the Dutch in that study, well, we didn't get those data back until, well, very late 2020 in a preprint, but officially published in 2021. And actually when using quantitative measures, proper measurable stuff, they found no psych psychological benefit to the young people on puberty blockers. Um, and in fact, even by the, the subjective qualitative measures, the, the self-reports from those young people, it was a really mixed bag as well. So the, the, the researchers, the team reported that um, the majority had a positive experience um, and obviously none wanted to come off, but actually the data is not really that strong. And even in those qualitative measures, when you look at those who'd been taking them more than a year, it's about equal proportions. Some in terms of about 30% reported or just under 30% reported positive mood changes and 30% said negative mood changes. And what's so interesting is that actually they had data that that showed that as far back as 2016 or 2015 even that that for some people well there was no improvement and actually for some people they appeared to get worse so there really isn't strong data certainly from the UK that supports the argument that puberty blockers uh, improve mental health or reduce suicidality i know that there are studies in the states that come out of the states that claim to show that but actually they're pretty methodologically flawed and and they have been quite heavily critiqued and and often don't actually show what they claim to show higher up in the paper when you look at the data so i 
yeah, I'm. It's pretty weak. It stacks up a very serious body of evidence here. Um, you have an intervention which may not impact people in the way that it should do in the short term. It may not have the reversibility that would make it less of a big deal in the medium term. It may not fix the problems that are concerning in the long term. And it may also lock these individuals into a trajectory that they can't get out of on the lifelong term. That seems like an incredibly big decision to make. It should be one that's incredibly heavily scrutinized. It's one that should take a very long time to to get to. And I understand that when this intervention or these interventions were first being rolled out, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know just how serious it is, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I presume that the unknown unknowns and the gaps in knowledge are precisely where a lot of the holes are like people fell through these holes, both in terms of the clinicians, the the consultants uh, and the patients. Yeah. And I, I, th- I think it's really important to acknowledge that there are consequences to not acting as well. And, you know, I've spoken to people for the book who are very happily transitioned and they describe puberty blockers as, as life-saving. So that is some people's experience. And there is an argument that, um, that some in the trans community and, and, and trans allies will put forward that they're not meant to be, um, you know, antidepressants or anything. They, they, they block puberty and they prevent a young person going through changes that, that they can never reverse if they choose to transition as adults. But I think, which is, which is true. Like that is one, one rationale given for the blocker is that it prevents future surgery and it makes, particularly for, for, for biological males, it makes it easier to to pass as adults if, 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 if they choose to transition. I think the difficulty is that, that these various other rationales, sort of the time and space to think and the improvements in mental health and the reduction in distress have been given as the rationale for using the blocker um, by researchers and by gender clinics. And, and so it's, there's sort of shifting goalposts as to what we're measuring and 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 you know uh, it, it's almost as if when when the data doesn't support the original hypothesis then the hypothesis changes perhaps yeah um and i think you're right with the unknown unknowns and i think when this started it was a perfectly it was trying to help a very small number of people with a very sort of specific difficulty and they proceeded with caution and they tried to add to data tried to add to the evidence base but when data came back that that didn't that wasn't consistent that didn't support what they believed they didn't that didn't give pause for thought and that's what's quite striking so it 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 wasn't and it, it may well be that that, you know, blockers, as I say, I've spoken to people for whom they've been life-saving, but it seems that when they're applied to a completely different cohort of young people who, um, you know, who never met the criteria of the Dutch study, you know, they weren't psychologically stable. They didn't live in supportive, necessarily, um, you know, stable home environments, and they didn't have lifelong gender incongruence. It's not really that surprising that you don't get the same 
results. And the surprising thing is to roll out one intervention to a, a massive group of people and not think that perhaps something else might be needed in, in some of those cases. And it's not to say that, that some won't benefit from them. But I think, I think that the evidence base hasn't really advanced much in 20 years. Yeah, it doesn't seem um, that way. Given given the fact that this that the puberty blockers aren't reversible, even if they were reversible, I don't know if this uh, if it changes this concern. How can it be argued that it is ethical to allow an individual who is not old enough to buy a lottery ticket, buy a Red Bull, vote, drive a car with a teacher in the seat next to you have sex watch porn how is it possible for that kind of person to be allowed to consent to any kind of procedure which could have lifelong implications well the argument that one of the women who led jids for a decade uh, she retired in 2020 bernadette wren wrote was that from its outset JIDS was not just a therapeutic project it was a justice project and it was about extending the rights to live one's life personal autonomy if you like to to this group of children and respecting their identity it wasn't about challenging who they were and and the argument is that young people know who they are and it would be cruel to de deny them the, the chance to live as, as the person they, they identify and who they strongly feel themselves to be. I mean, that, that, that's the argument. How many of these young people are just gay? Well, I can't answer that definitively. What I can say is that from the very limited data that exist, many of the young people referred to gender clinics, well, certainly to the to to JIDs, are same-sex attracted or or are bisexual. Um, so what we know is that actually, so the 70 young people in the Netherlands who form who who were part of those these two Dutch studies, well, one Dutch study really, but two tranches. Um which forms the basis of all gender-affirming medical care for children. All of the girls in that study, all of the biological females, were same-sex attracted or bisexual. None were op opposite-sex attracted. And one of the boys was, which is quite striking. The data that we have from JIDS is that of those referred in 2012, so you know more than a decade ago now, of the older young people that referred, so 12 and up, uh, for whom they had data, which was about 100, just under 100. So again, not, not, not great. Um, around 90% of the girls were same-sex attracted or bisexual and about 80% of the boys, roughly. And the only more recent data we have from JIDS, but we haven't seen any sort of breakdown. It's just on their websites from about 2015. So we don't know what the numbers are. But this puts it at about 70% combined for the girls, either same-sex attracted or bisexual, um, and about 60% for the boys. So, so, so still very, very high. 
And this was a, a concern that many, many, many clinicians had. And I want to be clear that it is not the sole, it's not solely coming from those clinicians who are themselves gay uh, or lesbian or bisexual. It, it was so widely seen. And I think some of those clinicians say that the, the charge was put to them, well, you're too close to it because you're gay and therefore you can't be subjective about this. Now, now Jids would d deny that that, that happened but but actually when i put that to them when i when i spoke to them for the book uh one clinician anna hutchinson she said look look at the data that it's not we, we weren't seeing something that wasn't there and okay the data aren't great we only have a couple of years but but you know we saw this on a daily basis young people mainly girls but the boys as well sitting in front of us talking about how they had a relationship with someone of the same sex, been homophobic, you know, experienced homophobic bullying, and then came to identify as trans. And it wasn't that they were saying that none of those people could be trans or they didn't know themselves in any way. They were saying, we need to think about this and we need to explore sexuality as we need to explore gender because it's noteworthy that in many of the cases, someone was not just, a transition wouldn't just change their gender, it would also change their sexuality. And they were just saying, this is something we really need to think about and that they were worried about. And it's another example really in this story of where knowledge seems to get forgotten as time goes on and the clinic became busier because the old data tended to show that when you had a group of young people who were distressed around their gender, some would grow on to be trans adults, but the majority wouldn't. And the majority of them would, would grow up to be gay. And, and that seemed to be forgotten as, as time went on. And clinicians said, look, these behaviors that many of us are taking as indicators that someone might be trans, they equally apply to kids that might grow up to be gay. Like they're really similar. So that's something we need to bear in mind. It wasn't that they would dream of telling a young person, no, your identity is not what you think it is, you're gay. It wasn't like that. And of course, no one was intending to, it's this awful, like converting gay kids. It's no, it, there was no intention, but what they were saying is we really need to think about this. And at the moment we're not. How many other mental health complications were the young people coming into this clinic suffering with? They were complicated young people. They were complicated young people with complicated lives. I mean, several clinicians said they didn't see a, a single young person for whom everything was fine apart from their gender identity. Um, you know, others disputed that and they said, for some, you, you, could, you just knew and there was nothing else it could be. And so therefore three sessions is fine. And, you know, that's, that's fine. Um, but, but, but many said that these were the most complicated, distressed and traumatized young people they'd ever worked with. And some of these were very, very experienced mental health professionals who'd worked in numerous other services. Um, and that's why they were so worried because there appeared to be so much else going on 
and and even even if some of those young people you know were trans and would benefit from a from transitioning and i'm sure some of those young people have they were saying they're not in the right place to do it safely and and some of those other issues need to be solved first it wasn't that we're denying their identity or, or the, that it could be the right pathway for them but it just wasn't safe to do it at that moment in time with so much else going on and, and equally it could be that the the primary difficulty was not the gender and that if you solved something else you know i mean i don't want to wish to imply that this was the majority of cases but there were there were several cases that's documented in the book where where a trans identification came quite quickly after a young person had suffered a traumatic event or had potentially been you know sexually assaulted or sexually abused now what clinicians say is that it's quite easy to understand why someone might feel distress around their body and particular parts of their body if they've been you know horrifically violated usually by people you trust in those parts of the body and I've therefore you'd want to change it yeah um you know and and what they were saying was that needs to be worked through first again it's not as black and white as someone's had a traumatic childhood therefore they can't be trans and can't transition they were saying in those circumstances that 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 trauma has to be worked through so that we make sure that we get this right and they were saying that too often it didn't happen well fundamentally the the question here i think is are young people distressed because they're trans and aren't fully living out their desired gender identity or are they trans because they're mentally distressed and haven't dealt with the underlying problem yeah and it could well be both yeah. depending on 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 which young young person you're talking about and it's interesting that through taking someone through CBT or uh, taking them to a, an anxiety counselor or a, a trauma therapist or whatever psychotherapy is significantly more reversible than putting them on puberty blockers yes i guess the counter argument would be if you miss the relevant time window then for someone who will identify as trans for life then those changes to their body are very damaging and and, and irreversible too so but, but yes i mean i wonder if the more <laughs> uh ideologically uh bound would even see removing some of the let's say that there is a, a non-zero number uh, of people within this cohort for whom autism ocd trauma etc cetera, etc cetera, are precursors to uh, a gender identity crisis and if the precursors were removed that the gender identity thing would fall away um i can imagine the more ardent trans activists here in the us saying that that would be something which is unethical as well that by getting rid of the precursor this is denying somebody's transness out into the world I oh mean, yeah and 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 that's what happened at jids in 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 that clinicians say that they were discouraged from providing what you might call a dif differential diagnosis so that it, to even suggest that someone's distress might be as a result of something else other than being trans was discouraged and seen as transphobic 
so so yes i mean that that is the view of some people um didn't you you had a story about a a boy who was showering five times a day and wouldn't wouldn't leave his room what was that story it was an absolutely heartbreaking story so this is a young sort of teenage boy was openly gay um and yeah, was coming home showering as soon as he got home from school and his mum didn't really think that much of it. She just thought, oh, wow, I'm blessed with a really hygienic teenage boy. Um, rare. And it became very, very serious. And she quickly realised that he, he had quite a very severe obsessive compulsive disorder and sought help from local, what we call CAMS here in the UK, so Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. And not long after... He was seen at CAMS. He blurted out to his mother, you don't understand, I'm trans, you've been misgendering me my entire life. And put it into perspective, he was six feet, yeah, big, 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 uh, very tall, you know, size 13 feet, what have you, as I say, openly gay and, and, and happy to be. And his mum was just like, what? You know, and it was 2014. It wasn't, she didn't even know what it meant, really. And from the moment that he'd said that, Cam's would affirm him as female and um, and set about referring him to gender specialists, to, to JIDs. And his mum was like, hang on, he's really unwell. Like, even if this is true, He's in no state whatsoever. And, and his mental health deteriorated very, very rapidly. He, he got to the point where he, he couldn't leave the house. He couldn't go to school. He, the floor of his bedroom had to have plastic sheets on it. He, his bathroom would be flooded because he was going to the toilet so much he couldn't keep clean and then the toilet would flood. And it, it was absolutely, I mean, talking to his mum, you know, eight years after the event, it was, she was in tears and it was very, very distressing. And he was so ill that he couldn't actually attend his appointments at JIDS. And rather than take that as a sign that perhaps he wasn't well enough to transition or to consider transitioning, a very senior JIDS clinician traveled to his home instead, uh, well, to, to, to nearby his home. Um, several hours um, and his mum claims that at that very first appointment not he wasn't offered blockers but but the subject was was brought up and and she just couldn't believe it and ultimately she took him out and he had private therapy she lost all faith in NHS clinicians and said this is this is just mad basically my son is really, really ill, and no one's helping him. And 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 then after several years, he 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 didn't identify as trans anymore, and he's happily gay and has a partner. And their relationship isn't very good. He still has mental health problems, but um, but it was just extraordinary that someone who cannot leave their own home, who who wanted to cut off their own penis, and saw things crawling up the walls. That to even consider that they would be in a, a state ready to transition. You said that 
less than 2% of children in the UK have an autism spectrum disorder and at mm. JIDS, more than a third of the referrals had autistic traits. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something that, that worried clinicians too because they're like, well, that seems to be very high. I mean, the 2% thing, I mean, that may well be an underrepresentation. I mean, this, this debate's had all the time, the, the, the data on, on, on autism autistic spectrum disorder is not fantastic but but yeah I mean that's the best we've got um and again it wasn't they were saying that no one who's autistic could be trans it's just with this really high proportion exhibiting moderate to severe traits might we be medicating unnecessarily autistic kids and they were really worried about that because what we know about autism is that not just on gender but on 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 other things as well you know autistic people can think very you know in very black and white terms and it seemed to those clinicians who were sitting in the room with those kids and and, and their families that it was a may have, it was potentially a way of making sense of their world rather than a true you know a true identity um, and they just wanted to be as careful as they could be what have you come to believe about why this 2015-16 period just saw an insane increase in the number of admissions. What what do you think is going on there? And also, what were the downstream implications for what happened inside of JIDS? Okay, so the first part of the question, I think there are lots of things that explain it. I don't think I can give a definitive answer, but I would I'd say there's there's a load of factors. So JIDs themselves would, would put this rise down to increased acceptance of trans people, increased visibility, and it being easier to, to come out and put a name to something. I think that might be true for some people. So, for example, there's a young trans guy in the book called Jack, and for him, that kind of fits him, really. He, for his entire life since childhood didn't feel like a girl and really when he came across the idea of of trans around sort of 2010 um he said yeah that's me so i, I that that might be the case for some people but it it really it doesn't explain the full picture and all i can really say is what clinicians have told me and what 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 young um both trans and detransitioned people have told me which is you know a variety of things so for some people and, and actually WPATH the World Professional Association of Transgender Health which is based out there in the States um, and is very affirmative even they accept that for some young people there will be a social influence to this to their trans identity and and that we have to bear that in mind um, and for one of the young people in the book Harriet that was certainly a factor for her the fact that many of her friends were also identifying as trans or non-binary and it was quite trendy um, at that time for her she also was having some quite severe mental health problems and she had had a same-sex relationship and been made to feel quite ashamed about that and she didn't want to be a lesbian and the combination of these things and she was a really heavy social media user and in her own words she she saw a trans identity as a as a way of understanding 
of, of jumping ship, but also of making sense of who she was. And for a while, she was much, much happier. She was. Um, she went through this honeymoon period for several years. It wasn't a fleeting identity. And in that time, you know, she, she took testosterone and had a double mastectomy and, and now regrets that. But so I think, so I think that's a, a host of other factors. And I think particularly for girls, it's, it's, it's quite hard being a teenage girl. I mean, puberty is quite difficult anyway. I mean, <laughs> but I think now we have, you know, hardcore porn is quite ubiquitous. And I think it's probably difficult being a teenage girl when there are certain expectations of you sexually and perhaps having your first sexual experience with boys who have consumed that kind of material. And I think it's hard for, for some girls who don't perhaps feel that, you know, they don't live up to the, they don't feel uber feminine. Perhaps they don't, they don't fit what they see as girls should be, you know, that they're not doing girlhood properly. I think it can be a really difficult time. And I think all these things perhaps explain why uh, a different identity might, might be the answer. That would also uh, coincide you know, we were talking about this flip almost that it was mostly biological men, uh, males, uh, and then you get this whoosh, this big sort of liftoff. So you go, okay, well, what's happening to just the girls? Mm. Uh, advent of social media, ubiquity of online porn, um, expectations, or I guess a, a back end of a sexual liberation movement that perhaps makes sex at younger ages more common. You know. British TV series like Skins and stuff like that, you know, it, it really does put relationships at the forefront of a 14, 15, 16 year old's life. So it doesn't surprise yeah. me. No, and, and clinicians, you know, these are not my sort of ideas. This come, but, but from, from professionals, but, you know, clinicians would also say that, that girls in particular, um, and, and they've noticed this in their professional careers. I mean, girls have a tendency to express distress through their bodies. So whether that's eating disorders, cutting, um, that tends to, you know, it tends to affect girls in greater proportions than, than, than boys for some reason. Um, I remember. Uh, but, but also, you know, I, I do want to say that, so, sorry to just very, very briefly, that yeah. I talked about Jack and I, you know, some of the number may well be that, you know, some of these people, some of these will, will, They'll identify that because they'll grow up to be trans. So I, I want to sort of acknowledge that as well. Yeah, I, I remember um, hearing a story, two really interesting stories recently, actually. The first one was a girl who overate uh, it, well, well into adulthood. Uh, and after a ton of uh, therapy, it turned out that she'd been sexually uh, abused when she was younger. And what it seems was happening was this woman was making herself into as um, unsexual of an object as possible by gaining weight. So she was using weight not only physically to create a barrier around her that made her feel safer, uh, but also um, like figuratively, symbolically, so that she wasn't seen in that same kind of sexual light. And I was like, okay, well, that's interesting. And then this other one um, is a YouTube channel called Kidology. She's a British. YouTuber, hundred and something thousand uh, subs. So it's it's an interesting channel, um, and there is a common subculture on the internet at the moment that there's no such thing as a female incel. 
that basically <laughs> any woman would be able to get sex. It might not be the sex that they want, but it's sex. And for men, there are men who want sex and can't get it. Therefore, there is no such thing as a female incel. Uh, and she really changed my opinion on this because she spoke about the fact that she had gone through some trauma, not in terms of a sexual assault, but just in terms of like an unpleasant, unenjoyable experience uh, that had left her feeling um, like incredibly averse to sex. So even if she likes a guy, even if she wants to get intimate with a guy, she can't bring herself to do it. And I thought, holy fuck, like that, that type of dynamic that could cause someone to want to be intimate, but be unable to bring themselves psychologically to do it, like that ticks all of the boxes of incel as far as I can see. Uh, and both of those just very interesting, obviously, uh, as, as much as I can try to understand the female psyche, much smarter people than me have done it and failed. Um, but both of those, were, I, I found it really interesting and insightful around you know some of the, the challenges that I think are unique to the way that females' minds work. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I can add anything really. <laughs> that's, that's such a fantastic story. So, okay. One of the elephants in the room, I suppose, especially for the people that are listening from America, especially for the people that are listening to this coming out of the culture war, raging left versus right thing is how much of a role did ideology play when it came to the behavior of uh, and, and policies at GIDS? I think it's really complicated. I think it absolutely did play a role. But it's not as blatant as some would want to believe and, 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 and talk about. So there are certain groups, um, you know, trans groups, trans support groups who were very active and their presence was certainly felt um, by clinicians at JIDS. And I mean, pretty much everyone I spoke to I mean, it depends what period of time you're talking about, but the period of time where the referrals were going up through the roof and the pressure was absolutely uh, immense to get through the numbers. Um, th there was a, a particular group called Mermaids, but but there have also been others and in, in more recent years, Gendered Intelligence is probably the most influential group, but their presence was felt and clinicians say, look, even even though they weren't in the room, they were in the room. They were in our. They were in our minds. We had this pressure from mermaids all the time, and mermaids were or are a charity which supports uh, gender diverse, as they put it, um, and trans children and their families. And they're very much in favour of a medical model. Um, and they lobbied JIDS for years, um, both to introduce the blocker at a younger age, um, so that in in the two thousands and and then to reduce the age at which hormones could be given and to relax um, the criteria whereby a young person had to go on the blocker before going on hormones. Now, it's not, the reason I say it's complicated is because they didn't get everything that they wanted. So those, those two later things didn't really happen. So there wasn't a big 
reduction in the age at which hormones could be given. It came down a little bit to around 16 as opposed to a hard 16. And so you could be, you know, 15 and eight months, nine months or what have you. But it didn't really shift significantly. Um, but they were influential. We know that the head of that charity would make requests on behalf of families for a young person's clinicians to be switched if they weren't getting a referral for for blockers as quickly as they wanted. And and on occasion, I don't know how often this happened. I'm not suggesting it happened often, but it did happen. And those those requests were granted. We know that senior people in the wider trust, which which housed JIDS, asked wanted to coordinate the content of JIDS's website with that of mermaids and make sure that they were consistent and get approval for that from from mermaids. Um, and I think there's probably a more subtle influence that they had, which is it appears that when new information came to light during the course of the work, whether that's information on the blocker and how it was working, you know, this everybody going on to cross-sex hormones or the vast majority, um, or, or other things that came known, for example, the risks to biological males who had their puberty blocked too early, who then went on to transition. Actually, if you block too early, it can make it very, very difficult to perform certain surgeries. Um, when information came to light, it wasn't routinely passed on and it wasn't written down. And the suggestion from, from clinicians I've spoken to is that that was because there was some kind of fear of a backlash from these groups if that information was codified because it was, you know, it was scary to tell a, a young male who identifies as female that, you know, surgery could be very difficult for you uh, if we block too early. It's probably not something they want to hear. And, and, and it, it also makes it much more real, doesn't it? You're talking about many, many years in the future. So I think it's they were influential. They weren't running the show, but they clinicians were definitely aware of them and potentially changed their practice because of them, because they were in their heads. Um, and I think it prevented JIDS from changing direction when perhaps it could and should have over, over, over the years because they were, the, the relationship was too close. And, and what clinicians have said is that who've worked in other places where, you know, you have patient groups and sometimes patient groups come into conflict, conflict with, with, medical professionals because they might want something that actually is not clinically indicated. Um, and, and what professionals said was that in other places we saw the service be able to hold a proper boundary and they didn't see that happening at JIDS. Um, again, the service dispute it, but, but it came up with pretty much everyone I spoke to, e even those who spoke favorably about the service. They said that, that mermaids were very influential. But what I, what I didn't find, and why I'd say it's, it's more complicated when you ask about ideology, I didn't find that the vast majority of people working there were ideologues in any way. I mean, there were some, but it was the minority. Most were just caring, thoughtful professionals who wanted to do the very best for the young people sitting in front of them. And so I don't think it was staffed by a load of ideologues, but it's quite telling that, that one of the people in charge of leading that service said, you know, described it as a justice project as, as well as a therapeutic project. Yes. The, <laughs> the uh, energy, the vibe, the um, culture 
trickles down from top to bottom, right? Yeah. And if you have somebody leading at the top that essentially everyone else is responsible to, culpable to, answers to. So, I mean, you can say it's not a bunch of card-carrying, flag-waving ideologues with foam fingers saying that we want to trans the kids and all the rest of it. But it does seem like there is a pretty big laundry list of errors that occurred. Yeah. Uh, it seems like I have no idea how malpractice how calling into dispute someone's medical ethics and whatnot this is. But we can definitely say that it was a suboptimal like clinical environment, I think. Um, who who's to blame and why why did why did this be allowed to happen why given the especially in the uk as well just for the people that don't that, that are maybe from the us um you know to get interventions you know, to get prescribed you, you can't get prescribed melatonin in the uk Right, you can buy ten milligram tabs on Amazon over here in the U.S. The 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 general patient doctor relationship in the U.K. is starkly different to the way that it is in the U.S. And they're not incentivized to typically intervene. You'll number of times I've gone into the doctor. I'm sure it's been the same for you as well. You, they'll print off a single sheet of paper, give it to you, and say like, "Well, you know, give this a read and, and try go, not using your phone before you go to bed, or or you know, stop eating so much kale or whatever the like, whatever the thing is." And then they'll say, "Right, on your way, you go." Um, my point being that they seem to be uh, uh, reticent when it comes to interventions, and um, most people enter this. I have tons of friends that are doctors uh, and 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 work in the medical industry. I don't think that they would want to go in to do anything to damage people. And yet it seems like there's been massive litany of problems. Why did they occur? Is there someone that's having the finger pointed at them? Why are there so many holes in this system? Big questions. I think, I think it starts in a way from, from the, previous answer in that I think where ideology the ideology did trump medical evidence here so it may have been and I, I'd like to believe it, it was well-intentioned that that there was a desire to help distressed young people but by expanding the group for which you refer young uh, for, for puberty blockers that was a decision that may have been well-intentioned and but it stemmed from a belief that you were helping someone uh, fulfill meet their true identity it, it wasn't evidence-based there was no evidence to support that and actually data came back that, that actually challenged that and and they didn't change practice and that's what's so sort of difficult to understand so i think you know that that is where you can certainly say that ideology influence because it, this was a belief system really um it wasn't based on evidence um it was a belief that they were helping um and as one clinician put it you know things can be well intentioned but um ill-informed who's to blame lots of people are to blame the leadership of jids is to blame and they should take responsibility for the decisions they did and didn't make. 
the leadership of the Tavistock Trust are to blame for not taking seriously enough the concerns that were brought to them by a sizable number of staff working in that service who were not transphobic, who were relaying clinical concerns, safeguarding concerns, safety concerns and potentially child protection concerns about the young people they were caring for. And really to have taken those concerns seriously would have needed huge change. And for whatever reason, the leadership of the trust didn't do that. NHS England is to blame. They did not provide adequate oversight. Why did they allow the rolling out of the early blocking of puberty without seeing any robust data at all? Why did they not step in earlier? Why, when the referrals were going through the roof and that they saw that these were very complicated young people, did they think it was sensible to staff the service with predominantly junior, inexperienced members of staff, which is what happened? And why, when it was clear that wasn't working, did they not change direction? Why did they not act until 2021 in um, asking someone to undertake a thorough review, an independent review of this service uh, or this area of care when they'd heard concerns for many years and, and you know, at least as back as 2018, if not before. Um, all those people are to blame. So are the media who for many years did not um, scrutinise this in, in the way they probably should have. So are the politicians who have heard about these concerns for many years and nothing has changed. And so are the healthcare regulators who until our work at BBC Newsnight showed them some of these very, very serious concerns that were relayed to the trust during an official review, hadn't inspected it for since 2016 and then did go in and, and rate it inadequate. So, so many people are to blame. Um, it, it, it's systemic failure on quite a large scale. Um, why did this happen? Well, Again, I don't think it's something that I can answer definitively. I think it's something I mentioned before that, you know, why didn't they change direction? We've talked about this when it was quite clear that it probably wouldn't be the right pathway for all of the young people. Well, it's very hard, isn't it, to admit we've made mistakes. It's not something that is in our nature really as human beings. And I think Anna Hutchinson puts it this way when she was talking to the medical director of the trust. She said, for someone to have been recommending or referring for a potentially life-changing medical intervention for a decade or so, what are the implications of admitting that you may have got that wrong? It's quite intolerable, actually, potentially. So it may well be that some of it is explained to the fact that it's 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 too hard to for some people to to admit that this might not have been the right thing to do in each and every one of those young people's cases. I think what clinicians told me on many occasions was this was just not a service that operated according to the normal rules that you'd expect in the NHS. And they said that the word gender, because it was 
there in this, it, it muddied the waters. Um, it meant that it wasn't subject to the normal oversight that you'd expect. And this is something that Dr. Hilary Cass has pointed out in her interim findings, that it hasn't been subject to the normal oversight that, that one would expect of a service that that refers for innovative treatments for children. Um, and the usual checks and balances, the usual data collection, it's just not been there. Um, you know, one very senior clinician said to me, it's almost like for NHS England, there was this cloak of mystery created by a gender service and it was assumed that, that we were the experts and it was so special that, and we knew what we were doing. So, and, and so the oversight wasn't there. And, and I think there were practical reasons that explain it as well. You know, JIDS was part of what, what's known as specialist commissioning in the NHS. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a specialist service and, and there are hundreds of them. And I think for a while it was it was really small. It didn't come across their radar. And I think some health insiders that I've spoken to admit they were far too slow to act. But I think for many years it just didn't figure. And you know, that's not that's not good enough. That's not an excuse, and it doesn't but 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 maybe yeah it's it, it, it's it you know there's no grand conspiracy but maybe it just fell through the cracks that the fact that there are so many different parties who through fear habit negligence busyness uh distraction whatever um for a whole host of reasons um and the fact that there is no single hooded figure with a long hook nose and a staff, you know, that's that's coordinating all of this is so much more banal and um, less conspiratorially impressive than I think a lot of people might have considered. But it's yeah. the, the the problem the problem with it, and it's the same way that intelligence services work, right? By compartmentalizing information you uh, limit any one person from being able to work out what's going on. But by compartmentalizing inefficiency, what you do is you stop any one person from being able to fix it because there are mm. numbers of different vectors, all of these different angles. Well, this person's shit and this person's shit and this person's shit. And you know, when you pile it all together, it's not one big mound of shit. It's multiple <laughs> spokes of shit all pointing at the same thing. Um, and yeah, I... Uh, I, I think that busyness point you make is really important, actually. I think sometimes they just, there just was no time to think, to think through what they were doing. What's happened to GIDS now? So, so GIDS is still open. It's, it's, it has lost a lot of staff recently. And I was talking to um, a parent of someone being seen there at the moment who has said this has been quite difficult because it's made continuity of care really quite tricky being having lots of different clinicians so they've lost a lot of staff they're still open the nhs has announced last summer its plan to to close it and it's going to be replaced by um regional services in the in england um two to start with but then the idea is that they'll they'll be maybe seven or eight um and that will hopefully address 
sort of the the busyness issue, which is you can't have one clinic attending to all the children of one country. It's it's crazy. But also there is a very different approach that's been signaled that these new services will take. So so gone is any mention of, you know, a time limited assessment, whereas the the current um document that guides JIDS talks about three to six sessions that an assessment will be carried out. There's there's just no mention of that. The primary focus is going to be psychosocial and, and psychological. So talking, it's going to be the primary aim is reducing distress. It's going to be far more holistic, much more mental health support for young people, um, expertise in all these other factors that we've talked about in autism, in other neurodiverse um conditions safeguarding expertise and now what they have said is that these gaps in the evidence base which have been identified by the systematic evidence review they've got to be plugged we can't just continue with no long-term data or um, a really clear view on who benefits from this treatment and who who might not benefit and what the long-term impact might be so what they've said is that uh, physical transition and access to puberty blockers probably will still be available, but young people will be expected to enroll onto a research program um, so that some of that data can start to be to be collected. And 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 actually on the point of data, as we as we've discussed, uh, these new services are going to have routine and consistent data collection, which doesn't appear to have been the case over the last 30 plus years. But but in the meantime, there are at least seven and a half thousand young people waiting on a waiting list for help some of them waiting for years in distress and with nothing and that's awful one of the reframes that i'm going to take away from your work is that when we talk about that when we talk about seven and a half thousand uh young people that are struggling with what they are saying is gender identity and for some of them very well maybe they require trained counseling f and interventions uh, to help them work out what's going on. That this could be from all manner of different places. And the reason that I think it's that's such an important takeaway is that that's politically neutral. Ideologically, it should be relatively neutral. Look, there are lots of contra indicators and and precursors to what can manifest and present as a gender identity problem that should be treated regardless of what it like okay so you're not going to treat you know even the most card carrying evangelical like hard writing well you don't want to treat a kid that's got adhd or ocd or autism mm -hmm. like of course not like you don't be an idiot um, so I think that that's, that's very important to think about it that way as in, look, there are a suite of things going on here. It is important that we give people, um, even if, you know, and I'm sure teenagers belligerent coming in saying that they know what the problem is and they've read it on TikTok or on, on Reddit or whatever and blah, blah, blah. Even if what ends up happening is that, uh, OCD, autism spectrum disorder, et cetera, counseling is couched within a gender uh, care uh, world, gender care treatment, which will perhaps encourage teenagers who wouldn't have gone for this kind of treatment because they are adamant that it's one issue and it may be something else. Mm. Even if you do frame it within that, that very well make, may make them more open to it. 
and go, okay. And then perhaps over time, if some of these uh, like issues, mental health issues, which are perhaps upstream uh, from this problem, if they do get relieved and you go, that's another way perhaps of, of dealing with this. And, you know, again, the massive influx that we've seen, and you mentioned it earlier on, that there are uh, pockets of uh, sort of gender issues that occur. It's, you know, f- five girls in one class in one school. Well, I mean, what's going on here? Like I, I, that, that seems to push against the, it's simply the fact that people are seeing that they can live their true selves because they're less, you know, there are role models out there in the world. Go, well, if that was the case, they would be completely evenly distributed if there was no sense of a, a psychological influence, a psychological contagion effect, like some sort of mimetic thing that's going on, it would be exclusively distributed randomly and evenly. But it's not. Mm-hmm. It happens in in particular towns, in particular cities, in particular schools, in particular classrooms. I'm sure that if you mapped the place that these kids sit at, at the lunch table, where they sit in class, you're also going to see that it happens within friend groups. So given that you have this massive increase, I actually think, you know, if the UK is able to enact what it is that you're talking about, I actually think that that's quite reassuring. I think that, you know, all of the different propositions, care, security, safety, uh, holistic model, focusing on talk therapy, et cetera, et cetera, that, that to me seems like a pretty unobjectionable, good approach to this issue. Yeah, I mean, the mood music is very positive. I think the problem is we're quite a long way from that actually being realised. But I think it's interesting that of the countries that have looked at the evidence base, they've all started to proceed slightly more cautiously when it comes to medical transition. They haven't ruled it out. But, you know, Sweden, Finland, Norway, potentially here in England as well. That the, there's a there's there's a sort of rowing back from from affirmation only and, and and medical approach only and it's it's talking therapies first and not ruling it out to those for whom it will still be the right answer but but it, but not the only answer for all of the young people coming forward um yeah i really appreciate how uh gentle you are with this discussion that's the best. That's the best word that I, the best proxy I can come up with for it. I think incredibly measured, um, which I think is very important. You know, if you want to try and change people's opinions, if you want to try and slice through a very divisive and sort of ideologically fueled topic, I think that you're going about it the right way. I'm very, very impressed with the way that you present your stuff. So, if the people that are listening want to find out more about you and the work that you do, where should they go? Well, I, I work at the BBC, so I don't have a, a, my own website or anything. But um, yeah, f- find me on Twitter. I'm at Hannah SB, so Hannah and then S-B-E-E. Um, the book's called Time to Think. It's on, in the States, you can get it on Amazon. I don't have a US publisher. So if there's anyone listening and wants to publish it, then please do get in touch. Um, but you can buy it on Amazon on Kindle or hard copy. It will be sent from in the UK. Um, yeah, that's me, really. <laughs> Anna, I appreciate you. Thank you for today. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for tuning in. Some worrying statistics coming out of that, but also reassuring, I suppose, that a clinic that was evidently no longer capable to deal with the problems it was facing has actually been shut down 
and that there are people like Hannah who can go and do investigative work and uh, actually uncover what went on. Anyway, thank you very much for tuning in. I'll see you next time.